1: And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am delighted to be in dialogue today with Dr. Ed Cohen. He is the author of On Learning to Heal, or What Medicine Doesn't Know, published by Duke University Press 2023. Ed, in addition to being the author of this book, is also the founder of HealingCouncil.com a therapeutic practice for people living with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. He is also professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University. Thank you for your availability today. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
0: That's a question that can be answered in a lot of different ways. Um, If I was gonna say where I grew up that led to my becoming a scholar, I would say I grew up in books. Hmm. Uh, I was a crazy reader from a very early age and I really spent most of my young life uh, reading curled up on the couch in our living room. Uh, working my way through mostly English and European literature. Um, but that's also to say uh, I lived in MOCs because the place that I grew up in wasn't exactly a place that uh, I was at the center of. My family <clears throat> were Jews in exile from European metropolitan areas, and I grew up in Northern Maryland where my father, who was a physical chemist, worked at a research installation, and where my mother, who was a leftist activist, was one of the main organizers of the anti-Vietnam War movement uh, during the 1960s and 1970s and was an active member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, we were very different from the other people in the little town that we grew up in, there were only two other Jewish families, the the Bears and the Getzes and us. Uh, so books were a, a place of refuge and, and the public library, which was just down the street. Um, so it sort of, you know, made sense for me to continue in that vein through the rest of my life. And yes, in fact, uh, I joke to my students that I'm in 56th grade right now. Uh, I've basically been in school ever since then. Um, So, uh, you know, I guess, you know, what would I, uh, how I would characterize, you know, what led me to being a scholar, apart from my proclivity for reading, was I was always one of those children. Who I'm sure very annoying, uh, who mm-hmm. were constantly asking why, why, why is it like that? Why, why are you doing that? Uh, because I really couldn't understand so much of what was going on in the world around me, and of course between my parents, my mother who was questioning why the war was going on, why there was so much racial and economic inequality in America, my father who's. Whole, you know, be the whole being of his life was to ask questions about why, why did matter? He he was a combustion scientist. So his his field was why does uh what happens when matter is transformed into energy? Why does energy get released when matter is transformed? So uh I think between the books and the whiness, uh, I was pretty much destined to be a scholar
1: from a very early age. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know is a book that came out of my, or comes out of my experience of living with Crohn's disease for more than 50 years. Uh, I was first diagnosed with Crohn's at the age of 13. And at that time, my illness was explained to me in the ways that it was understood then, which is not exactly the same as the way it's understood now, um, as an autoimmune illness in which uh, the way the doctors told me that first they said, it's like you're rejecting part of yourself, which quite didn't quite make sense. And then they said, well, it's as if you're allergic to yourself. And that also didn't make a lot of sense. So finally they said, well, it's like you're eating yourself alive. Now that I could hold on to. Uh, I was very sick for the next 10 years. And then I had a very serious episode in which I had a a bleed out, which led to a near-death experience, um, (laughs) after which I had radical surgery. And then when I was in the hospital recovering from that, I spontaneously started going into trances. And that was something that was completely beyond anything I had ever imagined. Uh, my parents, <clears throat> the physical chemist and the leftist anti war activist, were uh, ardent atheists, I would say. My mother belonged to Madeline Murray O'Hare's American Atheist Association. And <clears throat> in my family, matter was all that mattered. So when I started going into these trances in the hospital uh, in which I somehow was in a light-filled realm where I could take light and wrap it around the parts of my intestines that had been excised and the parts of my liver that had been cut away, I I thought it was purely pain management. Um, I had no spiritual intention whatsoever was not even a possibility that existed in my frame of reference, Uh, until then, a number of weeks later, six weeks later, when I finally was uh, dismissed from the hospital, I had an exit interview with my surgeon, and he said these words to me that I've never forgotten. Uh, He said, you're the sickest person I've operated on in the last five years who's still alive, and I have no idea how you got better so quickly. Now, needless to say, that kind of rocked my world, both because on the one hand, it really broke through my denial about how sick I'd been. I wasn't really, you know, spending a lot of time thinking that I had almost died. Um, But on the other hand, it really was the first time I heard a physician tell me that something that had happened to me was something that he could not explain. Um, And it took me a long time to actually take that in to make the connection between the going into trances and the healing process. But once I did, I began to inquire more into what the possibilities of healing were. Um, None of my doctors had ever mentioned healing as something that might happen. That's not part of contemporary medical discourse. Um, But there are many people who still do appreciate healing. And I was very, very lucky. Um, Once I began to desire healing and to understand that it's an important value, that I began to find a lot of teachers to help me. Um, And I've been following that path for the last 40 years or so. Um, I have tried many different modalities that some have been more helpful than others. Some have been amazingly life transformative. Um, And this book is basically an attempt to use my own learning curve to understand why it is that healing no longer seems to matter for medicine in the ways that it did for a very long time. Uh, The premise of the book really is very simple. For more than 2000 years, medicine's main objective was to support and encourage the natural power of healing. Unfortunately, contemporary medicine doesn't try to heal us. At best, it, it tries to cure us. And what I'm trying to understand in this book is how and why the shift uh, the, this shift occurred, and also to ask, well, what difference might it make if we began to value
1: healing once again? What are the primary themes in your book what quote unquote story does your book tell
0: My book tells the story of medicine's forgetfulness it it gives an arc of the history of medicine and the philosophy of medicine and the history of medical practice that that begins in the 4th century BCE when the concept of medicine was first articulated and differentiated itself from other kinds of healing practices. There have been always been healing practices in every culture that basically try to support and encourage the capacity of organisms to go on living. <laughs> in the fifth and fourth centuries BCE, something called medicine began to consolidate as a particular kind of therapeutic modality uh, uh it's associated with the name hippocrates who's often you know credited as a, a foundational a founder of medical discourse of course hippocrates is a character uh his the significance of his particular interventions is probably you know not what is credited to him but what's associated with hippocrates is the introduction of two technologies that continue to characterize what we think of as medicine today. The first is diagnosis, and diagnosis literally means, or etymologically means by way of knowledge, and prognosis, which means knowing in advance. So what makes medicine medicine, as distinct from other kinds of healing practices, is that medicine diagnoses us and it offers us prognoses. And through that, it affirms the idea that knowledge and knowledge alone is the most powerful resource to support and encourage the power of healing. Now, knowledge is great. I'm all for knowledge. Uh, I'm often considered to be a know-it-all, so I can hardly... Criticize others for their knowing ways. Um, But knowledge may not be all there is to healing. Um, There may be other possibilities. Um, And one of those possibilities that coexisted with Hippocratic medicine for more than a thousand years was what was known as Aesculapian temple healing. Uh, Aesculapius was the god of healing, he has a very interesting backstory. The temples to Aesculapius were uh, propagated throughout the Mediterranean basin for 900 years. And the methods of healing were primarily what's known as dream incubation. Uh, Petitioners would come, ask the God for assistance. They would join with other uh supplicants they would all go into a big dormitory they would sleep they would wait to receive dream uh instruction from the god uh that would either immediately heal them or give them techniques for healing, or some of them would receive, you know, dreams that were complicated, in which case they would discuss them with the priests. Um, and apparently, you know, they were quite effective. There are thousands of carved stone stelae thanking Aesculapius for uh, for his intercession and for his for the success of of his treatments, so Hippocratic medicine and Aesculapian temple healing coexisted basically for a thousand years, until the beginning of until around the fourth century of the common era, when Christianity basically crushed the Asculapian cult. Christianity. Uh, defined the gods of Rome and Greece as pagan, and it saw them as uh, rivals, and Aesculapius was the main rival to Christ because Aesculapius was the healer. And in Christianity, only Christ could be the healer. They did the same things. Aesculapius raised someone from the dead. Aesculapius, you know, healed the blind. All of the things that, that Jesus did, Aesculapius did. But Aesculapius has kind of disappeared from our understanding of medical practice despite the fact that almost every medical facility bears the sign of Aesculapius on its, you know, on its front. Every, you know, emergency medical vehicle has the rod of Asclepius. I'm sure, you know, people listening to this are familiar with it. It's just the rod with the snake twisting around it. That's the sign of Asclepius. It's as if Asclepius is hiding in plain sight. so my book is an attempt through going back to antiquity and then understanding the development of modern medicine, especially in the 19th century, the development of what we call biomedical reductionism, you know, the move to the belief that everything about living organisms can be explained in terms of physics, chemistry, and biology, uh, um, that, you know, the shift in the thinking of medicine from being an art to being a science. Um, I try to trace all of that history and then to offer as a counterpoint to that possibilities in addition to medical intervention, that have been significant for me personally in terms of helping me to reframe what it means to live with an illness and to begin to understand what healing might entail. Um, And so the book is an attempt to share those with others, you know, in the hope that by sharing my healing curve with them, with others, that other people will also, you know, be able to consider um, not just what medicine knows and the ways that it can help us, which are many, but what are also the things that medicine doesn't know and how might there be resources that are available to us that we don't call on simply because we presume that medicine is supposed to know what's wrong with us.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of our interview today?
0: I guess I would like... Uh, people who read my book or listen to this podcast to begin to have a somewhat more informed sense of their own investments in believing in medicine. I mean, one of the things that is characteristic of the way that medicine became modern is that in the 1920s in the United States and in Canada, um, the structure of medical education was transformed in the wake of what's known as the Flexner Report, which was a report written by Abraham Flexner for the Carnegie Institute, um, basically affirming that medicine should be a science, that the requirements for all medical education should include thorough understanding of physics, of chemistry, of biochemistry, of cellular tissue chemistry, and that it should be a kind of research-oriented project, or that at least it's based on research-oriented practices. So that's why Physicians in training still have to go to medical school for four years, postgraduate, that's why they still have to do residencies and fellowships. The structure of training is also a particular structure of the inculcation of particular kinds of knowing, particular ways of knowing. But the, the corollary of that, and this was very explicit, in the Flexner report, especially in the introduction to it by the president of the Carnegie Foundation. It was like not just to influence the way that medical education took place, but also to educate the public to believe that only those people who had been trained in this way were qualified practitioners. So... Uh, so from the very beginning of the kind of medicine that has been that we now take for granted as medicine or um the part of the project has always been to train the public to believe that the ways that bioscientifically underwritten clinical practice is the best way to uh To intervene in the case of disease and illness and in a certain sense the the simplest thing that i would like people to know is that or to to think about is that we're always more than we know we're more complicated than we know we're more we are more imaginative than we think knowing and thinking are really powerful resources for human beings but We also have imaginations, and the imagination can be a very, very powerful resource in relationship to healing. And that's something that medicine, wittingly or unwittingly, because of its investment in knowing, and because knowing seems to be opposed to the imagination, uh, discourages uh, us from considering as part of our own repertoire of resources that we can call on in order to transform our lives in, in many kinds of ways, but specifically when we're experiencing the kinds of challenges that we call disease and illness.
1: What would a veteran doctor or a practicing doctor learn from this book? What would medical personnel who are per- presently working in the medical field gain from your book
0: i think that on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know it would be helpful to to people in the clinical professions in part because it will affirm for them experiences that they have had themselves or witnessed in other people that are not included within the domain of legitimate medical understanding. Uh, really simple examples of those that are are very commonly understood are what, like when we, when we talk about people who have spontaneous remissions from cancer. Um, and this is a, uh, there's a, a lot of evidence for this. I mean, it's Uh, but it's often mostly considered anecdotal, which anecdotal is just another way of saying in this context, not very interesting to us, or we're not really able to know much about it. And therefore we have to bracket it and put it aside. Uh, what, what people working in the clinical professions, I think might take away from unlearning to heal or what medicine doesn't know, uh, is in part uh, an appreciation for things that they experience, that they have witnessed, you know, in themselves or in other people, that uh, that the dominant medical discourse doesn't have ways to make sense of. You know, the perhaps the most familiar example of this might be spontaneous remissions from cancer. Uh, We know spontaneous remissions occur. Uh, We don't know why they occur. They are not statistically predictable. There are no ways to run clinical trials about them. And therefore, in terms of the way that clinical medicine uh, gathers its evidence, they're considered anecdotal um, rather than data sets. And as a result, are kind of bracketed as being, you know, interesting exceptions. Um, and rarely do they provoke more consideration than that. But anybody who works in the medical field knows that these things happen all the time. Like the way that my physician, my surgeon said to me, you are the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still Alive and I have no idea how you got better so quickly. The that question rarely opens up to, well, let's investigate why that might be the case. Um, I think that, you know, the the book really tries to give both people who are medically trained and those who are treated by those who are medically trained, uh, a historical and philosophical framing of the assumptions that are embedded in Western medical practice uh, that may be somewhat limited in terms of the possibilities that are available in terms of how we understand what illness is, the dimensions of illness, um, the the lived dimensions of illness, and that you know that practitioners, clinical practitioners, doctors, nurses, uh, respiratory technicians, uh, that reading you know reading on learning to heal. I hope for them. Uh, through you know having some you know sense of alternative ways of of making sense of what they do might uh, inspire them to practice a little bit differently or to imagine possibilities that might not have occurred to them before in terms of how they interact with patients or what it is that they do to support, uh, patients through various kinds of, of experiences that can be very difficult or painful. Um, that, uh, that I think that, you know, many people who are drawn to clinical professions are vocationally drawn because they are interested in healing. I think the the difficulty or the paradox of modern medical training is that one, when they get to medical school, when they start to do their internships and residencies, healing is not something that they are encouraged to spend much time thinking about, let alone trying to encourage and support. It's not what happens in hospitals. By and large, hospitals are places that are really great to go when you're very acutely ill but they're not really great places to go if you're trying to heal. Um and that is a structural problem that has to do with the way that, you know, medicine is financed, the 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 way that <clears throat> um the way that people approach medicine. I mean, it's a very complicated set of issues. Um, But I do think that, you know, the book offers clinicians uh, a wider perspective on their own practice in the hope that by thinking about how uh, they've come to understand the world, how things have come to seem self-evident to them, that they might, uh, uh, be able to open to other possibilities that ha- that don't yet exist, they might help them to consider how to practice medicine otherwise to, to support the healing process.
1: What would a medical student or a prospective doctor who is on track to become a clinician in the future gain from reading this book?
0: So uh, one of the things that actually I'm trying to do now in relationship with, with a bunch of other colleagues at Rutgers is to create a program that we're tentatively calling Studies in Healing Justice. And it tries to connect the faculty in the School of Arts and Sciences with the School of Public Health and the Medical School, the Pharmacy School, uh, to try to give students young people who are in the process of learning uh these particular techniques that modern medicine ch- is training them to into uh, to give them some kinds of analytic skills, some kinds of, philosophical reflections that will allow them or help them to understand where the knowledge that they take for granted comes from, how it came to seem as if it could be taken for granted, and the ways in which those assumptions might have embedded in them certain kinds of persistent limitations that aren't necessary or beneficial um, so that for people who are entering the clinical professions, that they might have a more expansive sense of what it is that they are being called to do. I mean, the examples of this in relationship, I mean, COVID make this really clear, you know, in terms of what we are thinking about You know, the inequities around racial, ethnic, gender, and class disparities in outcomes uh, are well-documented, you know, in terms of uh, demographic and epidemiological data sets. But the relationship between those persistent and predictable unequal outcomes and the way that clinical professionals are trained to think about what disease and illness it, you know, consists of, uh, that connection has not yet been robustly made. Um, what we're trying to do at Rutgers is to try to create what we're calling a collaboratory between uh, people who work in different fields around, you know, various kinds of healing practices to uh to support and encourage the possibility of training uh clinical you know, people in the clinical professions to give them more critical perspectives that might allow them or or support them or encourage them, you know, to create new uh, as yet unconsidered ways to uh, help people that will try to mitigate these kinds of disparities that you know we see really regularly emerging from the kinds of institutions that are currently charged with help, what we call healthcare in North America.
1: What is your book's contribution to the philosophy of science and the philosophy of medicine? What can students of philosophy gain from this book?
0: So on Learning to Healer, What Medicine Doesn't Know is a funny kind of book. There's actually a a genre, which I only found out about after I wrote the book, which is called agnotology. Uh, Hmm. And agnotology is the study of what we don't know. So gnosis means knowledge like diagnosis, prognosis, the gnosis in in, in, in ancient Greek is knowledge. Agnotology is the study of what we don't know. Uh so literally my book, the subtitle What Medicine Doesn't Know is a study in agnotology, uh which means, and, and I'm borrowing here from the work of Michel Foucault, who is you know one of my main inspirations. Uh to uh, try to think about the historical conditions of possibility within which certain kinds, certain forms of knowing became legitimated and authorized as being truthful discourses. Um, and, uh, And that in doing so, they necessarily exclude from the realm of the true, a whole other range of possibilities that are then denigrated or devalued as being unimportant. So, you know, the the foundational example in relationship to what we think of as Western medicine or allopathic medicine um, in the late 17th and early 18th century was like the exclusion of homeopathy as being a not scientific practice right uh the same thing you know is true say for acupuncture in the 20th and 21st centuries i mean there are increasing attempts by people um Uh, at Harvard, for example, um, to come up with double-blind clinical trials that study uh, the effects of acupuncture. But it's not possible to be done because the practitioners, they can't do double-blind because the practitioners know when they're actually putting in real needles and when they're putting in sham needles. Um, so, um, So what my book addresses is The question of like, what is it, how does medicine come to think or how does medicine come to know in the ways that it has come to know, especially over the last 150 years, when something like biomedical or biochemical reductionism has come to be the standard uh, by which legitimate forms of medical practice can be evaluated, um, that you know what what has gotten excluded, or in Foucault's terms, what has gotten subjugated, um, you know, by the institutionalization of certain forms of practice which have great efficacy. I mean, this is no way an attempt to say that that, you know, medicine's successes have not been impressive and wonderful. I mean, I, for one would be dead without them. But what it doesn't know is also really important. Um, and so the book really is uh, um, uh, at a certain level, it's a historical reflection on the ways in which knowledge is produced in certain kinds of contexts. So what we would call epistemology. Um, But it's also an inquiry into what does and doesn't exist in terms of the way that we understand ourselves as living organisms. So in that sense, it is also an exercise in ontology um but you know and perhaps you know more than anything i think probably people will consider it uh, a work of metaphysics in a certain way or a work that you know calls upon spirituality not in a kind of woo-woo way but rather as a kind of transformative practice of the self um, in the ways that Foucault describes uh, uh, that, you know, by reflecting on the implied metaphysics of Western medical practice, it might, it helps us to understand how we can think more expansively uh, about the effects of knowledge practices, specifically, you know, medical knowledge practices, um, and the ways in which they shape, you know, what what we imagine it means to be a living organism, living among other living organisms, what it means to be a human living among other humans, you know, what it means to be a living being, living on a very complicated planet that is in a very uh, transformative moment in which we aren't really sure Uh, what the future of our biosphere is going to be.
1: What are the primary symptoms of Crohn's disease? How were your symptoms, as you experienced them, similar or different from others' experiences of Crohn's disease?
0: Uh, So Crohn's disease uh, is... um, Okay, Crohn's disease is a complicated gastrointestinal... Uh, phenomenon, the cause of which remains unknown, the treatments for which remain symptom suppression. There is no cure for Crohn's. Typically, Crohn's has been called an autoimmune illness, which refers to an understanding of the immune system uh, as predicated on what uh, McFarlane Burnett called uh, the science of self, not self-discrimination. So autoimmune, autoimmune illnesses, and there are now 60 to 80 illnesses that are considered to have autoimmune etiologies, uh, can be characterized as the way in which, as organisms, we mistake cell parts of ourselves as others. We, that at somehow at a molecular and cellular level, parts of our own organisms seemingly perceive other parts of our organisms as not part of our organisms. Uh, Autoimmunity is a contradiction. It's uh, one of five persistent contradictions in the theory of immunology. Autoimmunity, cancer, host versus graft disease, pregnancy, and the existence of commensal bacteria all challenge the presumption that our immune system evolved in order to defend us from attacks by uh by pathogens that live outside of us and pretty much are trying to kill us. I mean like for example in relationship to covid, you know the way the virus was referred to as an enemy. Uh the virus is not an enemy. The vi- the virus is a very complicated and, and uh and not well understood uh entity that is on the borderline between animate and inanimate uh uh existence. Um but whatever it is, it's not an enemy. It doesn't have intentionality. It's not trying to kill us. It's just that we can enter into the cycle of its reproduction in certain ways that facilitate its creating more versions of itself. And in so doing, (laughs) it deleteriously affects the function of various organ systems in our bodies. Um, so, um, the, uh, oh, so, so Crohn's, you know, is, uh, has typically been understood as an autoimmune illness that can affect, uh, the entire digestive system from the mouth to the anus. Uh, it was, uh, it was not originally called Crohn's disease. It was defined by uh, Dr. Crohn uh, in the 1930s to differentiate it from another illness, which is called ulcerative colitis, which had been first defined in the late 19th century. Um, but basically, I would say the most characteristic uh, symptom of Crohn's disease is shit—a uh, lot of shit. Uh, Crohn's produces a lot of diarrhea one of the ways in which it manifests is through the ablation of the villi line our, our small intestines you know and as a result we don't actually fully digest food we don't absorb nutrients so malnutrition is another symptom uh uh other common symptoms are like cramps or um (laughs) <laughs> there or there are things fistulas. I'm just thinking all the things I've had. Uh the um, you know, small bowel obstructions, uh, and then complications from small bowel obstructions. Uh there, yes, there sec- there are secondary character uh symptomologies that are characteristic. For example, forms of arthritis, forms of skin disease. Uh, autoimmune illnesses are often characterized um, in ways as if they were specific sim- specific disease entities, but they're not really in the way that disease entities, you know, such as infectious diseases, are defined. And there's often overlapping kinds of um, symptoms, which is one of the reasons that it makes it so difficult for them oftentimes to be diagnosed. Um, Because diagnosis is always a differential diagnosis, which means in order to diagnose someone with something, you have to differentiate it from what it's not. Right. Um, So so Crohn's uh, is a now well-established disease, there's a Crohn's and colitis foundation, you know, there's a lot of research, there's very fancy, you know, expensive, uh, what are called biological um, uh, monoclonal antibodies that are prescribed to suppress symptoms. Uh, But, you know, most people who have Crohn's disease at some point will have Surgical interventions, since you know Dr. Crohn first characterized disease, which he called regional enteritis, uh, surgery has been always been the fallback. Um, but you know, basically Crohn's is a persistent uh, condition, um, and uh, yeah, and it requires uh, knowing where the bathroom is. Uh, uh on no a moment's notice that that's one of its main characteristics.
1: Who is Burrell Crohn? Why is Crohn's disease named after him in particular? What can you tell us about his biography and legacy?
0: So Beryl Crohn was a a Jewish physician, gastroenterologist in New York City, he and two other people published an article that tried to provide a kind of natural history of a constellation of symptoms uh, that he thought were different than those ulcerative colitis, because at that point, they understood them mostly to involve the small intestine rather than the large intestine uh, um, he trained many many physicians uh and he continued to do research and uh and had a a, clin- a large clinical practice uh with people with various kinds of gastrointestinal problems um uh, he was the mentor of my, one of my gastroenterologists, uh, Henry Janowitz, who then took over Dr. Krohn's practice. And so he had Dr. Krohn's office on fifth Avenue in New York. He had Dr. Crohn's desk. He had Dr. Krohn's files. And so I would go to see Henry, uh, Henry happened to be the father of a friend of mine, which is how I got to him, uh, and uh, and Henry and, and Beryl Crone uh, then out 10 years or so after the initial publication of the, the JAMA article, Journal of American Medical Association article on uh, regional enteritis published a <clears throat> follow-up that basically reiterated the understanding that there was no cure for Crohn's. It was not clear. What the causality was, and that symptom suppression was the best form of treatment that was available, and in the end, uh, surgery was something that was often, you know, uh, uh, a preferable treatment. Especially before these new, you know, kinds of biological uh, immunosuppressants were developed, like when I when I was very sick, I they they didn't exist, and so I grew up on uh, taking prednisone, um, large doses of prednisone for more than ten years. Um, uh, that would no longer happen. So so Dr. Crone was basically, and I he didn't he didn't call. What we now call Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease, (laughs) but after him, because he was the first person to characterize it as such. Uh he uh that we now in his honor
1: uh characterize it in in his name. Who is Moshe Feldenkrais? Why is he noteworthy? Can you tell us about his biography and importance?
0: So um Moshe Feldenkrais is uh was um well he's born in eastern europe he migrated to israel um in his early life he was one of the people who actually began to build tel aviv um he was uh also trained as a physicist he went to paris to get his PhD. He got the first PhD, like interdisciplinary PhD between um, engineering and chemistry. He worked in the lab of um, the Curies uh, while they were doing the research that um, led to their getting the Nobel Prize for radiation. Um, He designed a lot of their lab equipment. He was also uh, um, a martial arts expert. He was designated by uh, the founder of Judo to basically bring Judo to Europe. Uh, Then during the Second World War, because he was a Jew, he fled from Paris to England, where he then worked Uh, in the war effort Um, and during this time he started developing uh, physical practice um, in part in an attempt to uh, help himself he was a jock and he had blown out his knees playing soccer and was told that you know that there was no way there was no reparative Therapy at the time. It was long before the kind of surgeries that we have now. And his intuition was that many physical uh, problems that we experience are the result of repetitive stress, that we use our muscles and our bones and our connective tissue in particular kind of patterns that mostly we learn as we're growing up, at points in time where our, our organisms are actually not fully developed, and therefore we actually uh, take on patterns that are inefficient or ones that actually uh, uh, create tensions, you know, and frictions between the muscles and the our, our muscles and our bones and our tissues um, that then over time can lead to more, uh, complicated, you know, forms of disruption. Um, but his insight was that, uh, we have a lot more neurophysical capacity than we, uh, that is available to us, you know, at any particular moment and that we're actually capable of learning new ways to move. And so he developed both, uh, um, Uh, uh, manipulative practice, like he treated people, you know, physically, but also developed a teaching practice um, that's called Awareness Through Movement, um, that now is is taught all around the world. Um, And, you know, he was, you know, in his own right, he has been very important in what's known as the somatics movement. I mean, but he was his work, not him personally, but his students uh, were very important in my life uh, because that was the first technique that I was introduced to that really helped me to redress uh, patterns in my own experience, particularly the ways in which, you know, as someone who had had, you know, grown up with a very serious gastrointestinal illness, I tended to try not to be in my body as much as I could in a conscious way. And what awareness through movement tries to do is to help us use our mental capacity to focus on the ways that we move to understand what the limited ways in which we've habitually uh, learned to move and to see what happens when we introduce other possibilities um, that will allow us to expand our repertoire such that we might be able to move with more ease, more grace, with more range of motion, uh, that we might be able to, our postures can improve. And that, you know, starting from, you know, that, uh, physiological basis that we actually can carry, you know, that understanding that there's more possibility, uh, um, than we than we currently know into our our psychological lives into our political lives to our spiritual lives. Uh, so Feldenkrais was a great teacher, um, uh, and his work has been very very important for me and for many other people. It's not my uh, my primary practice at the moment, but it's one that has really given me a great foundation for thinking about how to move and to live otherwise
1: there are many theoretical contributions that your book is indebted to um they include the work of Michel foucault roberto assagioli and henry bergson how do these thinkers show up in your book in what ways are you indebted to them
0: well i'm i'm deeply indebted to all all three of those uh primarily foucault um <laughs> my story with foucault is uh i mean foucault is my favorite thinker uh and um i had a really um profound experience reading foucault when i was in the hospital at the same time that i was spontaneously going into trances <clears throat> i was reading i was doing a reading course with my dissertation advisor on foucault's writings you know because i was in the hospital i wasn't in school um and foucault's second book is called birth of the clinic and birth of the clinic is about how clinical medicine emerged And the end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th century, clinical medicine is the kind of medicine that is practiced in a hospital. That is what clinical medicine is. And what Foucault tries to help us understand is when the clinic emerged as the privileged place of of medical training and medical practice, certain ways of, of thinking about what it means to be an organism, what health and illness are, and what disease uh, entails, got sedimented. In particular, the most famous point that that Foucault makes, which continues to be the case, is that the way that hospital medicine worked at (laughs) the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, especially during and after the French Revolution, is that hospitals weren't what they are now. They were mostly Uh, institutions of last resort. They were the place where poor people went uh, for various reasons, Um, not necessarily primarily medical. Um, That Uh, At the end, and and they were often, usually religious institutions, uh, supported by in uh, in the context of France, which was the first country to kind of move in this direction. I mean, the supported by the Catholic Church. Um, In the end of the eighteenth, the beginning of the nineteenth century, uh, medical practice in the hospital took on a new set of routines, which is that it didn't have any better kind of treatment possibilities necessarily than anything that had gone before it. But what they began to understand is that hospitals provided clinicians with large populations of people who had various kinds of symptoms. So in terms of training, doctors could look at different people, see what their symptoms were, take stock of them, you know, attempt to treat them more or less successfully. But, you know, when they weren't successful, which they often weren't, and people didn't usually go to the hospital until they were pretty extremely sick, uh, that when they died, their bodies, their corpses, then were utilized, uh, for autopsies and dissections through which doctors in training then could try to correlate the lesions that they discovered within the dead body with the symptoms that they had witnessed when that body was alive to try to establish the lesions as the causes for the illnesses that they were treating. That was a profound transformation in the understanding of what medicine was and what medicine did, uh, and you know, it continues to be a rite of passage for all medical students who are trained, who in first year have to do uh, ought to have to do cadaver dissections as part of their basic medical training. Now, there's a lot you can learn from a corpse about what causes things what causes people to die but you can't learn anything from a corpse about healing healing only occurs among living organisms so western medicine you know is premised on a certain way of extracting knowledge from dead bodies or dead animals so think of like the all, the way all of the poor Rats that we breed in order to kill in laboratories, in order to perform experiments that will lead us to, um, you know, new kinds of therapeutic possibilities, which I'm not, you know, which I'm in favor of. Um, so, you know, so Foucault, reading Foucault in the hospital was like, it was a, a mind blowing experience because it was the first time that i realized that the medical practice to which i had been subjected for more than you know the preceding 10 years and uh, including taking these massive amounts of really both physically and mentally altering drugs and um uh you know and all of the other interventions that that i had had to go through and all of the indignities of various kinds of testing, that that these were the effects of a certain kind of historical phenomenon in which medicine was constituted in a particular kind of way that happened at a certain moment in history. And that was not necessary, or uh, that it had certain possibilities that it privileged. Uh, and other ones that it excluded, but it really kind of just gave me like a whole new way of thinking about uh, about what I had been experiencing in the preceding, you know, ten years. And then when I got out of the hospital, so Foucault continued to be really important to me. You know, partly because as a young gay man living in the san francisco bay area right at the beginning and through the height of the aids epidemic you know first of all foucault wrote a book called the history of sexuality that has been a profound intervention into western thinking about what sexuality entails and how we think of ourselves uh uh and how we relate how we think of ourselves and how we relate to one another when we imagine that there is something like sexuality at that is a given that is some kind of quasi kind of natural or biological uh um phenomenon uh so but so you know i i you know first You know, reading Foucault about the hospital in the hospital, then reading Foucault about sexuality, you know, in the context of being a young gay man in San Francisco. And then during the AIDS epidemic, I mean, Foucault's work was so important for the ways in which uh, people living with AIDS and AIDS activists, you know, began to be able to frame the understanding of AIDS. AIDS is not a disease, it's a syndrome uh, the ways in which you know people were able to analyze the kinds of medical and pharmaceutical investments uh, that you know that were being institutionalized, you know, at the very beginning of the epidemic, and and through organizations like ACT UP, were able to directly challenge you know the assumptions of what the standard of care should be, you know, what kinds of treatments could be available. Right. So, so Foucault's work, you know, because, you know, his project is primarily to reflect on, you know, why it is that we take certain things to be self-evident and how they came to seem as if they're self-evident and what might what other possibilities might emerge if we can trouble the self-evidence, the seeming self-evidence of that self-evidence. Um, and so, so Foucault is like my intellectual hero in that way, uh, and really, you know, has uh, helped. He helped me make my my first book, uh, which was called "Talk on the Wild Side," which attempted to look at how the opposition between heterosexual and homosexual emerged at the end of the 19th century as a way of thinking about all the permutations of male sexuality and asked why did we come to think that anything that men could do with each other or with other people could be situated somehow on this linear scale between heterosexual and homosexual. My second book was about the notion of immunity Uh, and how immunity was a bio, uh, was a political and legal concept for more than 2,500 years or around 2,500 years before it became a medical concept at the end of the 19th century, which is now taken for granted as if the immune system was designed to defend the organism against, you know, foreign invaders. Uh, so I tried to inquire as to why it seemed to make sense uh, for this political and legal concept to, to be used to make sense of how we as living organisms live with each other, some of which are human, some of which are not. Um, so Foucault is, is, is my grounding place. I mean, his uh, you know, his motto might be: we're much freer than we feel. And we don't know that because we take certain things for granted that were uh, that were created at certain moments in time. And that if we know, if we begin to know something or think something about how these formulations came to be, we can hopefully begin to imagine other possibilities for living differently. Uh, the other two, Henri Bergson. Uh, is a late 19th, early 20th century French philosopher, um, who uh, was an amazing thinker in his own right. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature for a book that he wrote called Creative Evolution, which is unbelievably brilliant. Uh, he wrote books called uh, Matter and Memory. Uh, and then wrote uh, um, a later book called uh, "The What's It Called? The Two Two Foundations of Morality or something like that." Um, again, a, a very a capacious thinker who really reflected on the limitations of Western modes of knowing, in particular scientific knowing, uh, which he uh, thought about in terms of evolutionary possibilities for organisms um, and the way that you know certain kinds of, of what he calls intelligence are predicated on analytic skills, like breaking down motion into discrete moments. So for example, if you are a predatory animal and trying to figure out how to catch your prey, then you need to be able to imagine the the arc of the way that that uh your prey might move so that you know where to intervene in the course of its motion in order to catch it and <clears throat> that you know so he uh he takes up uh certain kinds of analytic presumptions that are embedded in Western scientific formations, uh, and tries to show that they, as important as they are and as powerful as they are, with respect to how living organisms live, they're limited, that they're reductionist, that they try to um, find certain essential components, you know, that can be revealed through analysis, but there's not much synthesis, and there's certainly very little creativity involved in uh in, in that those particular ways of thinking. And so he introduces uh what he calls the élan vital, uh the the vital spark or the vital push um, as a way of thinking about what makes a living organism alive. Uh, many people who are very committed to uh, reductionist ways of thinking you know uh find Bergson's work to be outlandish. He is uh castigated as a vitalist, which in contemporary scientific discourse is sometimes akin to calling someone like a flat earther. Uh you know, the, the idea that that there's some Irreducible vitality to living beings that cannot be simply explained at the level of uh cells, molecules, and subatomic particles. Um, Bergson himself was more of an uh um, agnostic in that regard. The way that he understood the of vital, he said, you know, the vital he said vitalism doesn't necessarily tell us much. We can't really say what the the vital element is but at least it acts as a reminder to help us uh, remember that there are things about being living organisms that we're ignorant of it's a placeholder for all of the things that we constitutively can't know. Um, and he advocated a kind of philosophical uh, potential that he called intuition you know as a way of being able to uh, access those aspects of what it means to be alive that are basically killed uh when in scientific practice science wants things to be cut and dried cut and dried is another way of saying dead Berkson was really interested in what continues to happen in time, you know, time as a dimension within which change and creativity are possible. Um, as I said, Joel is a different person. Uh, he's an Italian Jew, trained as a doctor at the end of the 19th century, studied in um, the Bergoli Clinic in Switzerland with Breuer, who is the person who came up with the notion of schizophrenia. He trained as a psychoanalyst. Uh, um, he was in communication with Jung, and Jung and Freud wrote letters about him. They He was the first person to translate Freud's work into Italian. Um, and uh, he went back to Italy. And rather than becoming a psychoanalyst, Um, because he was interested in, in various kinds of, I guess, you know, what we would think of as spiritual practices. His mother was a theosophist, and he was interested in yoga. He basically thought that psychoanalysis as a kind of you know, extrapolation from medical practice was a very, very important practice. And then analysis is a really important tool, but that it was insufficient. And he was really interested in adding to analysis synthesis. So he developed a practice called psychosynthesis. Um, And the presumption of psychosynthesis is that we are always more than we know, that what happens in a clinical encounter is that the person who is occupying the position of the therapist or the counselor um is holding open a space uh the space of possibility uh for the person who has come you know to the therapeutic encounter for uh for the possibility that that the person is much bigger than they currently hold them to be that they have many more uh there's many more possibilities than that that they're currently imagining and that but that only they know what will the which of those possibilities uh in through their realization will actually be healing um the main difference one of the main differences between freud in psychoanalysis and a Jolie in psychosynthesis is that Freud never uses the word healing. You can look at the entire opus of psychoanalysis for, as written by Freud. And the word healing occurs a handful of times, and mostly in ways where Freud is dismissing uh, that possibility. Freud, <laughs> basically in uh, in Essays on Hysteria, uh it, you know, writes this very famous uh rejoinder to someone who says, Well, what's the point of psychoanalysis? You're not, you seem like you can't really do very much. And he says, Well, yes, we may not be able to do everything, but hopefully we can convert your neurotic symptoms into, and this is his phrase, ordinary everyday unhappiness. Uh ordinary everyday unhappiness. And to me, that seems like a very low bar uh, to set, whereas Essa Jolie really thought healing uh, was a potential that we all have. And that returning to earlier ways of thinking about medicine, that the role of the therapist, the role of the doctor, the role of the counselor is to support and encourage the natural process
1: of healing. Can you tell us about your therapeutic practice, healingcounsel.com.
0: So uh, my therapeutic practice is eclectic. It draws on all of the different modalities that I have uh, been trained in, like psychoanalysis or Feldenkrais uh, or continuum, which is another movement practice that I've studied for many years. Or yoga or meditation. I have a lot of, of different tools that I work with, but my main goal is to help people who have either been diagnosed or who are looking for a diagnosis uh, to perhaps reframe, reimagine what they are experiencing through the their processes of illness with the understanding or with the caveat that healing is not curing. Healing doesn't mean you're not going to die. Uh healing is the affirms the possibility that we as living organisms we can affect affect the quality of how we live in the circumstances in which we live. Um, and that <clears throat> what healing council tries to do through conversation, through uh through you know, through the introduction of of guided imagery or certain kinds of of movement practices is to help people uh, have a better sense of what it is that they might do to enhance their own experience, given that medicine has framed what is happening to them in certain kinds of ways, which may be more or less beneficial if they are being you know if they're receiving treatments that are actually supportive of them which not everyone is um yeah so healing counsel you know really is an attempt to to give people a sense that their imagination is a very powerful resource in their healing process and the more that we can activate our imagination in order to move towards possibilities that will enhance the ways that we're living up to and including the ways that we die, um, that that will all be to the good.
1: How do you define healing? What is healing? What is healing not?
0: That's a really hard question. Uh, and and honestly, I don't know what healing is, uh, per se. The way I talk about healing is to say that healing is a tendency and it's a value. All living organisms as a condition of going on living have to be able to repair themselves. You know, biology talks about living organisms in terms of the capacity to take in nutrients, to expel toxins, to reproduce themselves in time, and to repair themselves. Um, And they're satisfied with that. Uh, I think... Repair is not sufficient to understand the potential that healing represents. Mm-hmm. I think healing is a tendency that all living organisms have, uh, but that the thing about a tendency is that tendencies aren't necessarily actualized, that there are always countervailing tendencies. And that's why I insist that medicine really lost something when it lost the sense that its job was to support and encourage the natural power of healing. Um, I think healing, uh, you know, at a basic sense can be understood as the possibility that we can learn to live in more life enhancing ways that and that's why I think healing can be physical, the you know physiological. But it can also be psychological, it can also be political, it can also be spiritual, it can also be environmental, and probably at this point in human history, it probably should be all of those things at once. Um, So I think that healing refers to a possibility that we have as living organisms that we often take for granted, that we don't emphasize as a value either for ourselves personally or in our culture. Um, That's certainly clear in the United States where, you know, getting something as basic as universal healthcare is too contentious to even, you know, for for to even be possible, um, and that you know. So when I say that healing is a tendency, I think we have the capacity to move in that direction. When I say it's a value, I think that it's a it suggests that we need to desire to heal in order to learn. Um, and my and my understanding of healing is that healing is always a matter of learning to heal. Healing is never the same thing twice because we're never the same thing twice. Healing is not curing. Curing entails a fantasy of going back to the way we were before we had the experience of illness. But if illness by definition is an experience, it means we're changed by the experience. And there's no going back to before. There is a learning to be in new ways. And I think healing is another way of suggesting and supporting the possibility of learning to live in new ways that are more vital for us um, at any point in our lives, including up to and including the ways that we die. For some people, their deaths are incredibly healing. Um, Healing is not the opposite of dying. Healing is about the quality of the the experience
1: of what it means to be alive as we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on next? Can you tell us about your subsequent work now that this book is behind you?
0: Well, the book is barely behind me. Uh, I just literally got my copy of it yesterday. Uh, but what I'm working on now is both, uh, in, in my, uh, counseling practice, uh, Trying, I'm continuing to work with people and trying to help people to have a more expansive sense of what their experiences of illness might be. And then in my academic practice, uh, I and a bunch of other people at my university are trying to create a, a new, what we're calling a collaboratory, to bring together people in the clinical professions with people who work in more traditional scholarly disciplines and who also work in public health uh, to create a project around what we're calling healing justice that would try to precisely uh, understand healing as a value and a desire that is at once personal, political, psychological, and to understand that we need to be able to support people both individually and collectively at all of these levels, if we hope to go on living as a species and if we hope to go on
1: living as a a nation. As As we end today, I wanted to thank you for everything you sacrificed to make this book possible and everything you endured in the ordeal that you describe in this book. I really appreciate being in dialogue with you today. You're really a role model to others. It was really an inspiration to have this conversation with you.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot and healed a lot in writing this book. And I'm really uh, anxious to share it with other people and and see how it resonates with them.
1: Thank you. I could not be more grateful. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Dr. Ed Cohen regarding his new book, On Learning to Heal, or What Medicine Doesn't Know, published by Duke University Press 2023. Dr. Ed Cohen, in addition to being the author of this book, is also the founder of HealingCounsel.com, a therapeutic practice for people living with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. He is also Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University. Thank you.